Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Outlet, where we are leading the global energy conversation. I'm Ed Reed, editor at uh, Energy Voice, and I'm delighted to be uh, joined by my colleagues, Ryan Duff and Andrew Dykes. How was everybody's Valentine's Day? Marks out of 10. Ryan? I'd say it's pretty good. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a high end. I'll give it about 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10 is good. 8, eight pretty competitive. Andy, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go in with, a, with an 8 also. Solid, all right, all solid. Right. You good, know, it's good, midweek. Good. It's midweek. There's nothing kind of too extravagant that's possible in in one's thirties. You know, we can't we can't go uh, living <laughs> at large, pre- pretty like, low uh, key, like know. Ryan the young buck. But uh, you know. It was pretty decent. Okay, well, I mean, I, I, I've got to say there, there will be extra points handed out if if, if any of you can can, can work in some uh, Valentine's Day jokes during the show, um, you know, just 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 follow along at home. I've got I've got one plan, so Ooh. watch out. It's gonna be it's gonna be a barnstormer. Um, but 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 maybe Ryan, if we're gonna start with you, I think today. I mean, I think obviously uh, there are some changes afoot in 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 Aberdeenshire. Um, and, and possibly with some unexpected uh, fallout on the energy sector. Yeah, definitely. So um, so recently, Aberdeenshire Council said that it was closing all um, out-of-school sort of, uh, care. So essentially, you know, your breakfast clubs, your after-school clubs, etc., um, you know, the sort of things that you might send your kids to over the, over the holidays or whatever, anything that's run by the council, they're going to be cancelled. Uh, this, it's also impacting uh, how nurseries are run. Nurseries are going to run from the nine to three school day. Um, now, you might be thinking, well, oh, that's all well and good, but this is not a, a childcare podcast. This is an energy podcast. Why do we? <laughs> why do we care? And the answer is, well, Access Network, the Aberdeen-based uh, gender equality group claims that this has the potential to drive women out of the the energy sector. So uh, just for just for context, uh, you know, I, I understand that not all of our listeners will be in the, the northeast of Scotland. Some of them will be further afield. Um, and when you think of energy in, in the UK, you might think more specifically about Aberdeen City, not Shire. But I thought I'd share some uh, some context for you here. Uh, 16,232 people within the Aberdeenshire region are employed directly by oil and gas. So that's not including the renewable sector as well. So clearly, clearly, there's a lot, a sizable amount of the workforce is is in that region, and this this uh, closing down of of care kind of is a more indicative of a, a larger problem, I, I'd say. But Access Network say that it's going to disproportionately affect women, as uh, mums are often the parent that are looking to maybe cut working hours or step away from employment in order to look after the kids, to, to be there to pick them up from school or drop them off. And if, you know, if this comes into effect, maybe more parents will be making that decision of, well, should we be cutting my working hours to make sure that this uh, this happens? I just I just want to be very clear as well. I understand we are three men talking about this uh, this topic. So, uh, take take what we're saying, maybe with a little little pinch of salt. Uh, can't speak from firsthand experiences, but I, I will try to be as informed as possible. Um, the end, and uh, you know, we we've, we've discussed this before. You know, the energy sector is already uh, it struggles with uh, gender diversity. There's a it's quite a it's quite a male dominated industry. The majority of people 
in the industry are men, and uh, this looks like it'll threaten that and make it it'll make the industry even more male dominated. And again, you might be thinking, okay, but why is that necessarily a problem? It's maybe not the greatest statistic in the world, but how does that how does that change you know day to day operations? Well, in twenty twenty one, OE UK said that improving diversity and inclusion within the the offshore energy sector is critical to achieving net zero and delivering the energy transition. You know, you sometimes hear these energy leaders speaking about how the the energy transition is one of the biggest engineering puzzles of the modern day. And if everyone in the room that's trying to solve this comes from the same background with the same sort of points of view and the same same thought process because they've went through the same experiences, you don't really have fresh ideas coming in in the same way that if everyone's coming from different backgrounds with different worldviews, with different ideas. And that's what's really, really necessary for, for progressing change. So Access Network, uh, not one to just point at, point out a problem. They are also offering a solution. Um, it's calling for the industry to to support those parents that might be affected by this change and retain their their talented workers that might be thinking that they want to move away from the uh, move away from the sector to sort of focus on parenting. So, uh, some may be looking to uh, you know change jobs to accommodate their new working hours. Um, Axis also spoke about how some people might be wanting to move home, you know, maybe move into the city or another uh, local authority that is still providing these uh, these services. So the group has told employers to ensure hybrid working is available, provide flexibility in hours. And ensure that if people reduce their time in the office, it is not seen as a lack of ambition. Like I say, this is more indicative of a wider problem um, where, you know, societally, uh, women are often the, the, the parent that decide to take time off and that often impacts career progression. So I guess, you know, when it, when it comes to a sector where, like I say, there are so so few women already within it. A change like this does have massive impact, right? You know, I mean, this is just Aberdeenshire, but, you know, it, it, like I say, it, it is sort of a widespread problem. I'd be interested to hear what your guys' thoughts are on what Access Network have said and maybe these changes in general. You know, um, Ed, you're a dad. How would how would these type of changes affect you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really tough uh, juggling uh, work and and having a child. So I think yeah, there is um, there is a real challenge there. And I, I I suppose particularly in sort of you know maybe more uh, remote you know villages and towns, we've got to commute as well. Obviously, there comes a point if you've got to pick your child up at three fifteen that uh, it becomes really hard to, uh, to 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 get anywhere if you're not doing that sort of flexible working. So yeah, I mean, I think it. it it does sound like a challenge. Um, so yeah, Andy, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's interesting asking. Uh, I think there there is a necessity to ask industry and to ask the uh, the business sector to step up to this. I think there are solutions in kind of co co working spaces and things that maybe have extra childcare provisions and things like that, rather than just like parents having to bring their kids in and stick them in a conference room or something while they finish off a day's work. Lots of stuff like that. I think you know 
banding together as either groups of offices, groups of companies, whatever, to sort of step in to provide that. However, there's a little bit in my gut that goes, why are we having to do that, right? I mean, this is that's a, it should be a sort of state provision. So it's definitely disappointing to see that, that you know, those cuts that are proposed or are, are going through, right? I think uh, I was surprised, not, not, a, not a great deal of feedback from men that I've seen so far, which I think is a bit of a shame. Uh, I know Access obviously is a broad church and has men within the group, but I think uh, even the comments on LinkedIn and some of the comments on the petitions, I, I see a handful of men commenting, but I think definitely more vocal uh, support needed on that front as well. Um, maybe, I mean, you spoke to more people, Ryan, maybe there was a kind of a more balanced viewpoint in that way. Um, no, I, I think uh, most of the people I've seen, much, much like yourself, most of the people I've seen that are, uh, that are talking about this are, are women, um, which again, I, I think, Sorry, it indicates this this society, societal sort of belief that it's the women that look after the kids, which isn't this uh, you know it's not right, but that's that's the way that I think typically the the cookie crumbles. And I I, I thought it was quite interesting. I spoke to I, I got in touch with Aberdeenshire Council as well and asked them, you know, so these are these are some criticisms directly from the energy sector. Um, what what do you what do you have to say to this? You know, does this sort of change thought process? Um. And I, they got back to me with a, a statement that they'd released a couple of days ago in a press release. So that's not ideal. But essentially, they're saying that they're in touch with uh, with local uh, care providers, uh, independent, to try and make sure that the 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 there's enough resource there to to support these uh, near 350 children that are currently in um, currently in in these care places. So. That's not including the kids that are maybe set to come in uh, to breakfast clubs and after school clubs, etc. After the summer, um, you know, when the new school year starts. So, yeah, I think, like I say, it's indicative of a bigger of a bigger problem, and it is primarily women that are talking about it. And I, if I'm honest, I wasn't too convinced by Aberdeenshire Council's comment. I uh, my initial thought was, oh, you know, you're you're just hoping that they're picking it up because you know. What does talking with childminders do to help increase their capacity? Um, presumably, presumably also though increased cost for parents, regardless. Then, right? Oh, 100%. There's, 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 an, there's an increased cost either through taxes, which I suppose is, is perhaps a, a more broad way of doing it, or there's then a, quite a significant cost if you're having to go for, for private childcare, which is already you know approaching I think a crisis point across the country. And so, yeah, it, it seems like the solutions that are being presented aren't necessarily ideal. I think a lot of parents are going to have to make the best of a bad situation. I think the other thing is just the 350, right? You know, assuming most uh, children have two parents, that's actually double the amount then of adults and perhaps more if there are other caregivers that are having to kind of contend with these and having to make adaptations in their life. And, uh, and you know, they can go a certain amount, but I, I think, yeah, asking people to then suddenly completely change their hours from the summer onwards is, is not a realistic prospect if they also want to have careers, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it, it does speak to the, the broader kind of challenges, doesn't it? I think obviously a lot of local councils are in financial straits, right? I mean, I think, you know, some of them have already gone into essentially bankruptcy. A lot of them are sort of running deficits. So I think like there are, there are the kind of broader challenges. And obviously I think also the kind of the childcare question really also sort of speaks to the kind of the higher levels of government, right? I mean, I think Rishi Sunak kind of came out with some plans around, nursery places which obviously is a little bit earlier than than sort of after school clubs but obviously kind of still playing in the right in the same sort of idea around access for working parents to 
get back to work after after having children and sort of maybe kind of coming back from that disruption. So I think maybe we'll we'll we'll, we'll leave your, uh, your 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 thoughts there for the for the moment, Ryan. But uh, obviously, moving into the next section, we'll be talking about the windfall tax. Um, maybe this is the increased tax burden that uh, that central government's uh, looking to. We'll be back after this break. The cost of polluting is increasingly high for companies covered by emissions trading schemes. New sectors, new regulations and tougher rules will transform the industry in the UK and Europe in the upcoming decades. Navigate the emissions trading market with the support of our experienced team. Virtus Environmental Finance, emissions trading in safe hands. Andy, so the the, the windfall tax it's a perennial issue, uh, and 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 you know given the uh, this 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 week's uh, the coincidence with uh, with Valentine's Day, in fact I was I was pestering my wife uh, with on, on Valentine's Day with with energy related uh, Valentine's Day uh, lines, and one of the ones that I used was Are you the UK government because I'm wind falling for you? Oh, that's awful. Oh, oh, <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't I don't know if your segment will be able to to match up to that level of of of, of wit. Uh, but uh, give it your best shot. I'm not sure I'm able to match that energy profits levy of a segue there. <laughs> I was just going to say there was no love lost between uh, Labour and the no. sector this week. <laughs> <Dear. laughs> what what have we become? <laughs> so no doubt prompted by the call to arms issued by Alistair specifically in last week's podcast, this is the news that oil and gas sector leaders have warned that thousands of jobs and billions of pounds of investment could be wiped out under Labour's plans to increase the windfall tax. To recap the proposals, uh, Labour confirmed that it plans to hike the industry's headline tax rate from 75% to 78%, which it says it is in line with Norway, and uh, to enact what they've called a proper windfall tax, ending what they described as loopholes in the energy profits levy that enable the industry to recoup some of their investments. Um, they also plan to extend the sunset clause of the policy, which is currently planned for March 2028 until the end of the next parliament. I'm not sure where that would put it, but I think be possibly beyond 2030. Um, there has been a lot of reaction and analysis in the past few days. So I'm, I'm going to take it step by step. But the, the first uh, kind of shot, I think, came on Friday from Trade Body Offshore Energies UK, which said that up to 42,000 jobs and £26 billion of economic value would be lost after those manifesto plans were unveiled. I think it's important just to, to state how this modeling uh, worked. You know, I think when the number came in, we were, we were kind of quite keen to fact check it. It's a big number and uh, it, it seemed... Uh, worthy of just interrogating how they reached it. Essentially, this is a money in uh, or investment in and kind of jobs and economic value out model. Um, but their calculations suggest that, yeah, there, there's already a decline in jobs and an additional 42,000 jobs over the uh, end of the decade would be affected by this uh, decision. So the same metrics uh, were then used to estimate the loss in gross economic value, which shows a fall of 26 billion pounds over that period. Now, whether you kind of believe that the likelihood of zero new investments being brought forward in, in UK oil and gas, you know, there's still a question over that. But OUK has said that this is a realistic outcome in their view. Uh, David White has told us that they expect the impact to be effectively immediate were the policy to be enacted and that the losses would come uh, certainly before the end of the decade. I think their critical point here is that while this 3% at the top end to supposedly bring us in line with Norway um, is is I think an issue for the sector, but a relatively minor one in comparison, it seems much more concerned about the removal of the capital allowances at the other side. So that's um, essentially if there is no tax benefit or the incentive to investing or to reinvest in these projects, the suggestion is that there will be no further uh, commitment of capital uh, to the sector. 
uh, and hence you're kind of accelerating a decline that is already in place uh, in, in line with the natural decline of the basin. So uh, OEK has asked for an urgent meeting with Labour Party leadership and said it was the, the policy was kind of enacted with no consultation with the sector. Um, so certainly that was a, it was a bang to end last week on, um, and certainly they they came back with the uh, the comment and the uh, and they brought the data that Alistair had requested. So thank you very much, OUK. If that was gloom, here is some doom. There was a, another piece of analysis uh, emerged, I think, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday this week from investment bank Stiefel, which suggested the losses would be a best case scenario of twenty thousand jobs. Again, I think similar modeling. I, I haven't seen the ins, ins and outs of, of uh, Stiefel's model. Uh, Alice just spoke to them the other day. Um, but it outlined a worst case scenario in which uh, 100,000 jobs could be lost. And that was the event that uh, Labour decided to ban new drilling of any kind, which I should stress it has not said it would look to do. It has That's not in the manifesto, but they kind of modeled the, the possible worst case. And I think that's what made a lot of the headlines uh, this week. 100,000, obviously, a, a huge number. I think uh, even by OUK's metrics, that's you're pretty much looking at half the sector there. Um, Stiefel Managing Director for Oil and Gas, Chris Wheaton, said that the year could be something of the final year for major spending in the North Sea. Um, it estimates that the Treasury would be £20 billion worse off over the existing life of the North Sea fields, and that the UK would be importing 80% of its gas supply as early as 2030. Ed, I believe, will come on to a little bit more interrogation of that potentially later on as well. Um, an accumulative loss of £40 billion of investment by the mid-2030s. Um, they also kind of uh, bore out a little bit of this idea about aligning with uh, the UK with Norway. Their suggestion was that, uh, you know, despite the sort of apparent uh, match in tax rate, firms would actually be worse off than uh, our neighbours to the north. Uh, mainly that's because average uh, costs, both capex and opex, um, I think 30, around $30 per valor in the UK average, uh, Norway's is 15 um, Mr. Wheaton said that you know your return on investment is already a lot lower, and what makes the UK uh, any changes then make the UK suddenly uncompetitive against other parts of the world, and uh, ultimately that's what's driving this this jobs exodus. You know, if you aren't competitive, you won't get investment, and then you you don't get the jobs out. Um, what's interesting, I think, around this is also, and, and who we spoke to spoke to last week was um, RGU. Um, Robert Gordon's University in the Northeast, they did some work uh, last year and they warned that up to 95,000 jobs were at risk across the sector. And that was in the event that we are kind of accelerating a decline in oil and gas without accelerating or without kind of uh, effectively managing uh, a renewables industry for, for people to move across into. Um, I think they were different metrics and potentially different kind of calculations, but it is interesting that we are arriving at the same ballpark, right? We're arriving at this kind of somewhere between kind of 40-odd and 100,000-ish jobs if we are mismanaging this transition. Um, so the Transition Institute Director, Paul Deleu, said that uh, if the plans were carried out, it would further further undermine investor confidence in the UK's offshore energy industry, putting the world-class supply chain and the workforce at risk. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just thinking that it was quite interesting. Uh, you pulled up RGE's report from last year, because, yeah, Paul does outline that, you know, not enough investment in renewables, and this this can happen. And that, that comes at the same time that, yeah, the windfall tax uh, is set to go up under Labour, but also it cleaved it cleaved money out of its green energy uh, sort of goals as well, right? So, I mean, is that exactly what, isn't that exactly what RGE were discussing? Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't even got on to the, the missing 28 billion, the case of the <laughs> disappearing 28 billion pounds. Um, I think there, there's still a lot of back and forth over that. I, I was kind of working on something this week around it. I think uh, that that's all state money. So I think the 
um, kind of discrepancies in the, the debate over that seems to be how much private capital you're able to mobilize um, versus how much the state's willing to put in. But certainly, if you're not, not going to create the conditions to invest, you're probably going to get less uh, private capital to be invested in the, the sectors that you're talking about. Whether you know or not any of that 28 billion was ever earmarked for offshore energy, I'm not sure. But obviously, we have other projects. We have things like Intog. We have uh, things like hydrogen plans, a lot of demonstrator projects, things like that planned. The kind of crossover and the cross-pollination, again, is something that OEUK has been asking for, a more holistic approach to tax, a more holistic approach to incentives. Um, whether or not, you know, Labour has plans for that, I'm kind of not sure at this point. But there certainly would be, I think, if this specific manifesto pledge were to be enacted, definitely some dominoes are, are tipping over into affecting those investments too, I think. I think, I mean, I think there's like a, there's a, there's a really interesting question about uh, the extent to whether Labour is, I mean, these plans, are they attempting to extract the kind of the you know the maximum sort of value out of the industry or is it just like a sort of a punitive um essentially trying to to to, to end sort of hydrocarbon development because it, it it feels like um they you know i don't know what Andy, what are your thoughts you're, you're you're preempting my conclusion my very uh well <laughs> well-drawn conclusion here Ed. but no the question i kind of wanted to, to ask or to, to pose is you know Rather than setting an end date for oil and gas, which at the moment has sort of kind of soaked up a lot of political airtime over the past two to three years, right? Rather than setting a, drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, no, no exploration after this date, perhaps no production after this date, whatever. It, is this a sort of attempt to kind of, I don't know, outflank that argument and just kind of tax the sector into, into a, an accelerated decline anyway? I, I don't know. But it, it feels that way in, in terms of, you know, Keir Starmer has had clearly meetings with the sector. Ed Miliband and other have had, had meetings with the sector. It feels like the last thing that they would have <laughs> come to an agreement on is, yeah, we'll hike, hike the tax rate again, which has already been unpopular, and also remove a lot of these allowances that would allow you to reinvest in electrification or other projects, whatever. Um, so I, I do wonder whether, yeah, is, is, this, is this an attempt to kind of claim that you're still saying, yeah, oil and gas can continue. It just could continue with, you know, none of the... Um, benefits that a lot of under, other industries are have access to mm. um and and in is that a kind of yeah is it is it shutting the north sea through the back door i'm not sure i mean i, I, I suppose the other sort of factor there is obviously sort of the political sort of uh brinksmanship isn't it like if the conservatives you know have brought in this windfall tax then i suppose and then you know sort of the Labour party feels that maybe they've got to go one better they've got to be kind of tougher on business tougher on you know, uh, capitalism. I don't know, but uh, it it does feel like it's a kind of like an like an acceleration of, of of sort of competition. Possibly, but you know, I mean, surely you could just argue you were going to maintain it that it's already law and that you're not going to overturn the previous government, which seems to be most of what Keir Starmer's policy making <laughs> <laughs> is about. Anyway, it's, it's continuity, right? Um, I'm I'm intrigued by the idea that you there's sort of a bit more political point scoring on on the upping it and the removing what they claim to be loopholes, I think what the industry would mm. say are, are kind of investment re-incentives. Um, I'm maybe going to just revisit uh, one, sort of a couple of comments that were made as well this week. Um, but I think one is very stark and I think kind of puts it in a bit of context, which is the Aberdeen Grampian Chamber of Commerce's uh, policy director, Ryan Crichton, said, um, to put the devastating job toll in, con in context, it was the axing of 20,000 jobs which sparked the miners' strikes in 1984 and 1985. And that, you know, this one policy has the potential to wipe out five times as many. Again, take the numbers with a pinch of salt, but I think the, the rhetoric is certainly around there. And I think the parallels all the way through this debate, the parallels have been with deindustrialization and the 1980s and the coal industry and the mining industry. Yeah. And I think um, 
the sort of numbers that we're now talking around that are now kind of seen as credible uh, were these things to be enacted is is something to pause over, certainly. A, uh, a, a, a dour notes to, uh, to, to, to end that, but uh, we'll, we'll be back after a short break to, to talk a little bit more about uh, Europe's decarbonisation plans. Energy Voice leads the global energy conversation, which is why we're excited to introduce our newest offering, eForward. eForward is the essential and exclusive community of senior North Sea leaders driving the movement to secure clean energy. The energy transition is not just a climate issue, but an economic imperative. We have a leading position in this race, and eForward can help you take advantage in a discrete environment where thought leaders and recognized experts can collaborate on moving energy forward. This is the specialist membership designed exclusively for North Sea innovators, offering a focused program of events, valuable data-driven insight, and an exclusive digital hub. This is where you can set the agenda and shape the energy transition. If you're one of energy's forward thinkers, it's time you joined us. Visit eforward.energy, that's E-F-W-D dot energy, to learn more and to join this exclusive community. So uh, this week, Shell held its uh, its, its yearly uh, LNG presentation. Obviously, uh, every year Shell comes along and, and, and tells us just how important uh, LNG is to the world. Obviously, a uh, little surprise there as, as, as a sort of a major producer and trader. But I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting, there are reflections on, on I suppose, how uh, the, uh, the sort of demand side is, is, is shifting in Europe. I think before, uh, you know, the, the invasion, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was, there was kind of real opposition to uh, long-term uh, LNG contracts into Europe. The idea was, you know, we would move to uh, wind turbines, to solar panels, to hydrogen, and, and and really, sort of LNG would be a thing of the past, and 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 the uh, the the European you know governments were really keen to essentially disincentivize the idea of of, of these kind of uh, companies uh, signing long term long term LNG deals. So those those sort of deals, which is maybe sort of twenty five years, um, and that, that that sort of really ensure sort of security of supply. Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously kind of caused a number of uh, number of rethinks on that part, and. Uh, Part of the uh, part of that change was uh, destruction of demand. So we have seen gas demand going down throughout Europe, obviously driven in part by those sort of high, really high prices in in twenty twenty two, and that that the sort of you know concerns going into winter. Twenty twenty three though really saw um, you know essentially a sort of a mild winter. Gas storage was high, uh, and 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 despite this sort of you know demand destruction, despite the investments into renewables, there was a kind of a bit of a sort of a, a, a sea change for uh, for those off takers who were uh, who who sort of suddenly sort of rediscovered the allure of long term uh, LNG supplies. I think it, it was a sort of a bit of a sort of a reckoning of the idea with. Um, around that sort of decarbonisation. And I think there've also been sort of um, a softening in terms of sort of political rhetoric. So I think, you know, politicians who may have, you know, previously sort of condemned, uh, you know, those LNG deals are now sort of talking about ways to kind of, lock, you know, secure gas into Europe, secure, uh, you know, energy security, you know, sort of lock in prices, 
and and it's 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 been a really sort of a striking demonstration in in quite how quickly these things can change. And I think obviously uh, you know Italy's uh, Giorgio Maloney, for instance, holding a, a summit a couple of weeks ago with uh, with Africa and and sort of you know trying to sort of you know strike those kind of long term deals to ensure sort of gas supplies into Europe. And 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 looking sort of broader, you know, around the world, I think obviously also the U.S. with um, with, with with those big new uh, LNG plants coming into action, Qatar is also moving into new LNG, uh, you know, liquefaction plants. More capacity kind of coming online, sort of twenty twenty five to twenty seven is is sort of the idea. So, I think it's it was it was really striking how. Um, Europe was saying one thing, ran into a crisis that, frankly, had been a sort of a long time coming. Obviously, we didn't know that, that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, but the idea of of of, of European overdependence on on Russian pipeline gas had been long established. I think you know it's been going on for at least twenty years. Reports have been coming out of various uh, think tanks saying, "Oh, this is a, this is a strategic over reliance." Russia's invasion of Ukraine obviously re- you know made people rethink that, and now as um, as those supplies have, have diminished, and as we were just saying, you know, those kind of challenges to uh, domestic production in Europe, which obviously, we, you know, the windfall taxes, is, is, it feels like an accelerant, doesn't it? I think, but so it's really sort of adding fuel to the fire of uh, of, of additional LNG supplies. So, for once, I, I I could really see not for once, but I think I could certainly see uh, Shell's uh, bullishness about uh, LNG supplies, particularly into Europe. So, it feels like uh, there's, a, there's there's a lot to be said there. Did they have a view on the Biden uh, decision to sort of pause? To, to be close, it's to pause shipments rather than like new approvals, but it seems to sort of potentially hold back new project approvals as well. Is that right? So the uh, the, the the Biden pause is about uh, export as, approvals, as it's come to be known. <laughs> <laughs> the Biden pause, yeah. So it's about it's about new export approvals. So essentially, projects under construction are moving ahead. Uh, projects that have the, uh, the the kind of the requisite approvals in place can move into construction. Um, obviously, there's sort of a question of sort of further down the pipeline. So uh, Shell's Steve Hill said uh, essentially, if the this pause you know kind of runs for about a year or so, it shouldn't really be a problem. More than that, and then there might be some 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 challenges emerging. I mean, I think it's it's quite extraordinary. I mean, I think quite how quickly the the US in particular has become a sort of a dominant player. I mean, uh, to think that it only started exporting LNG in 2016, I think, and last year was the single largest source of uh, LNG in the world. It's uh, it's frankly extraordinary, and and I think. Um, is that another sort of 150 million tons or so in in sort of North America? So I think it's 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 really uh, really extraordinary how, uh, how how crucial North America has become to uh, to the, that kind of global picture. And I think it was quite interesting actually. The thing so Steve Hill was, was seemed pretty uh, pretty complacent about uh, the kind of the Biden pause, but what he did raise kind of concerns about was pipeline access so essentially those, those those big shale regions in uh in in the us you know the the sort of marcellus places like that and 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 how you will export gas from those areas to essentially the gulf coast because that's where uh, where all the liquefaction is taking place 
And as, uh, as 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 more and more of these projects come online, you know, the challenges in terms of sort of securing additional pipeline access is going to be uh, maybe a, a sort of a more long running question. Or I think there are questions around local politics in addition to to federal. So we've chatted a little bit in recent uh, months at around kind of again those new projects or projects. I think with BP in particular, kind of are they going to be maybe pulling back or scaling back a little bit on future phases of LNG development things, because there now does seem to be this kind of glut on the horizon, right? I mean, did Shell have a view on that? Clearly, I'm sure their their view would be, we're going to make money regardless, but, <laughs> you know, the the supplies will keep coming, basically. But did, did they have a, a long-term view on that? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think, uh, look, they feel that essentially, uh, you know, they're projecting that LNG will overtake uh, pipeline gas supplies, just sort of around the sort of the twenty forty mark, right? So they they clearly see kind of like a long term growth for LNG in ways that you know obviously kind of outstrips you know sort of you know more localized you know supplies. And I think obviously Shell is well placed to uh, to kind of benefit from that, right? As as one of the few companies able to kind of see through those big projects, but also take a trading position, right? So they are essentially kind of you know seeing all the all the upside that they can. I think uh, there there are still those questions around, you know, is there going to be a sort of a supply glut, as you were sort of mentioning, maybe sort of, you know, towards the second half of this decade? And it feels, you know, that, that you know, that, 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 that frankly, that still might be, because obviously a lot of uh, LNG is kind of coming online in, in the US. There was sort of those project pauses, you know, sort of 2019, 2020, very few FIDs moving ahead. And now we're sort of, you know, moving back into, well, we were until the Biden pause, we're moving back into a lot more uh, project approvals. So it feels like there's going to be a big chunk of uh, LNG capacity coming in from the US around that time. And and, and also Qatar as well with their, with their Northfield expansion projects so there's going to be a lot more lng there i mean i think it's quite interesting you know does that mean that there's i mean i think that will drive down prices does that also uh drive new 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 demand so i think uh china india well essentially the sort of new areas of demand are going to be asia china india southeast asia those sort of areas um which are going to be quite uh price uh, reliance. So lower prices could well incentivize additional demand. And I mean, do they have a position on the kind of climate impacts of this? Obviously, I think LNG replacing coal, probably unquestionably a good thing. LNG replacing potentially, you know, faster transition to other forms of, of power generation, less so. I mean, is that is that coming into those calculations, right? I think there's a lot of heat on LNG at the moment, especially from the US kind of climate sectors, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, Essentially, their focus was really about the kind of the switch from coal, right? So they, you know, and playing into that demand from China, India, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, those kind of areas. Obviously, kind of, you know, the competition of 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 coal versus gas, I think, is the kind of the the the, the one that they were kind of talking about. And I think, you know, they were, you know, one of the areas of success that they were talking about was uh, in 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 Beijing, for instance, where, you know say five six years ago there were some real problems around air quality days and the you know the the u.s embassy would publish these kind of you know kind of daily reports about how bad the air quality was and the chinese government has taken action right and they have essentially stopped burning coal there and the the sort of the shift to other other forms of energy has has seen a real improvement in air quality i think Obviously, there are kind of questions around the kind of the, the, the kind of the broader question. If we do, you know, massively scale up LNG um, and you know demand is going to increase, then what does that leave us in terms of those sort of net zero 
moves, but I think also there's that kind of question around energy access, isn't there? Which I suppose kind of comes back to uh, where we started with that around Europe, Europe's demand, right? I mean, I think obviously Europeans have said we are willing to sacrifice some degree of, I suppose, sort of, you know, decarbonisation progress because we're worried about energy security. And it would be hard to say to emerging economies, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, you can't have access to this. You can't you can't burn coal because that's bad for the environment and you can't have LNG either because uh, we're worried about uh, historic emissions. So there's a, there is a challenge there that is uh, that, that, that Europe has found its way through by saying we're going to take more LNG. Uh, and it feels like Shell, at least, is is projecting that the rest of the world is going to follow. I think that's probably a, a good place to, uh, to to wrap up on. So thanks, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the the Valentine's Day ideas. Uh, if you've got uh, any any additional suggestions about uh, uh, lines, energy lines, uh, and, and and the Valentine's Day, then then please let us know. But for today, uh, this I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.